How is everybody? So my name's Mark. I'm uh, one of the elders here. Um, it's a privilege to come off the bench here and, and preach this morning. And thank you, Dee. Thank you, Sue. Help me, God. There we go. Uh, but thank you, yeah. Simple prayer. Um, we are, uh, have been in a series called Postcards from the Prophets. Um, we've been looking at this over a number of weeks. If you are um, new, uh, glad you're here. Um, it's from the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. If you have followed along, you have picked up several key themes across the weeks, and actually these are themes in all of Scripture around God's covenant and God's kingdom, God's providence, and most importantly, God's promise, His promise of the Holy One of Israel that is fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. And of course, in the coming weeks, we'll be focused on that as we, we look at at Advent, and what I would encourage you to do is, if you missed a Sunday, go back and listen to the message. Go back into the study guide, and if you didn't get through all of the aspects of the study guide, make this a, a package deal. Don't look at this as sort of a one-and-done thing and figure that if you missed it, somehow you can't catch up. There's, it, 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 there's so much to learn across all of these messages and all of these postcards from um, these people who, let's just be honest, right? I don't know what you think about, when, but when you think about these prophets, they they tend to be kind of doom and gloom kind of people, don't they? But the reality is, um, their message was one of ultimately encouragement, right? What they were really seeking was to allow God by His Spirit to bring out God's best in all of us. So this morning, we'll look at a postcard from the prophet Isaiah, who many would consider to be one of the most prolific, um, sort of most noteworthy prophets. He wrote 66 chapters. In his, uh, in his book, he is uh, a, the most quoted, actually the second most quoted. His is the second most quoted book in the New Testament. He served across five kings um, who served in Judah and Israel and um, prophesied, like I said, across multiple generations about many, many things. And like I said, he preached around the external threats and the coming events, but he had in equal measure prophecies that spoke to the internal threat that was within God's people. The internal threat that was, in, that was living within God's people, that they'd forgotten their purpose as redeemed servants of God. So not only does he confront their sin and their idolatry, but he also brings forward what they're missing. What they're missing. In essence, failing to live into and live out God's truest redemptive purpose in their minds, hearts, and lives. And that's his message to us today. Listen to this from Isaiah 48. It's not our primary passage, but this is what it says in Isaiah 48. This is what he writes. He says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you what is best. Who teaches you what is best. Who directs you in the way you should go. If only you had paid attention to my commands, then your place would have been, excuse me, your, your place would have been like the, your righteousness would have been like the waves of the sea and your peace, not your place. I can't read my own writing. Your peace would have been like the river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. What are we missing out on? That's what we look at this morning. And among the many themes that we could draw from from Isaiah, themes like joy and hope and perseverance and strength and comfort, we're going to look at what does it mean to find our contentment in the Lord. What does it mean to find true contentment in the Lord? And we'll look first at the setting, 
Then we'll look at our struggle, why we are so discontented, and ultimately we'll look at the secret and the source. And that'll be our time this morning as we look at God's Word. The postcard is brief. The passage is brief from Isaiah 55, verses 1. I'd like us to read it together if we can bring it up on, on screen here. Can we say this together? Ready? Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear to me and your soul may live. And so Lord, we would give ear to you. We would come to you thirsty, hungry, looking for your wholeness and your healing. So speak, O Lord, and draw us to yourself. Help us understand what it means to find our truest contentment only in you. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, so I call this invitation to dine, and you kind of picked up where that comes from when you read that verse together, right? It says, first of all, that it is addressed to all, all who are thirsty. Come to the water. Water in Scripture is symbolic of spiritual rebirth and regeneration and cleansing. Come by wine and milk. Wine is the symbol of gladness and joy in Scripture. Milk, the symbol of nourishment and sustenance, of health and nourishment. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Come, eat and drink. And spirit, speaking of spiritual nourishment and health, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. It is a picture of true, deep and abiding contentment. Are you content? Content in the Lord? It's a good question. I hope it will permit a personal reflection here. Whenever we encounter Scripture, it changes us. It transforms us. You know this line, right? Scripture can comfort the afflicted and what? Afflict the comfortable. Well, if you're here this morning with an empty cup and a humble heart yearning to be filled, you're in the right place. But I have to tell you, as I've wrestled with this passage this week, I found it challenging. And here's why. There's no question but what we live in a discontented society. But when I'm really honest about this, I live with a spirit of discontent in my own life on almost a daily basis. And so I've wrestled with this this week. And so I figure, why should you get out of it on a Sunday morning? I'm going to pass some of that along to you. At the end of the day, for all of us to know that God is drawing us forward in His truth and grace. So let the Holy Spirit speak to you around this issue of what does it mean to be truly contented in Him. Him, the one true and living God who is always drawing us to ourself. So George Burns, an old comedian, said that the key to a great sermon is having a really strong beginning and a really strong ending and keeping the two of them as close together as possible. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of give you the punchline, or at least most of it, right up front around what this passage is in essence saying and a definition of contentment. And then we'll look and I'll have an addendum at the end of what it really means to live the contented life 
And God, here's in essence what this passage is saying. Part one. Until we come to understand who we are and who God is as our Creator and Redeemer in Christ, and look to Him as our only source of true contentment and purpose in this life and the next, we will be forever and perpetually discontented. Truth number one. Truth number two. When we come into that relationship with Him through Christ and grow in that relationship, the deep and abiding satisfaction that we experience will be matched by a joyful, passionate, aching dissatisfaction to know even more. It's like Ernest Hemingway, who once wrote of a drink he tasted in Spain that was so good, so sweet, that he said it ruined every drink he tasted after that, made him perpetually long for that same drink and not want anything else. That's a picture of contentment and the desire to know more. So what's the punchline? Well, here's the main one, and then I'll put an addendum on at the end. Contentment is the fruit that comes from an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. Contentment is the fruit that comes from an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus. That's the setting or the setup. So what about the struggle? Why is it that we struggle as discontented people? Well, the answer lies in kind of a second postcard here as we look down in Isaiah 55. I think I have this up on the screen. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord that he will have mercy on them and to our God who will freely pardon. And then this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways, our ways. God's thoughts, our thoughts. God wants what he wants, we want what we want. As Dallas Willard would say, our wanters are broken. At best, we are confused about what we want, and at worst, we have this sin nature that is, that is prone towards envy and covetousness and selfishness. So our wanters are broken, and it shows up in our appetites, in our ambitions, in the things that we think will bring us contentment and approval. Confused about what we want, our, waters, our wanters are broken. Why do we waste time on things that not, don't feed us, and on labor that does not, not, does not satisfy. So I was reminded this week of a short story that I read back in college by Leo Tolstoy, entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? How Much Land Does a Man Need? I'm not sure if you've read this. But basically, it's a story of a peasant who wants more land, and so he cuts a deal with peasants that have some, and the deal goes like this. He is to start at sunup, and as far as he can go, all right, as much land as he covers, it will be his as long as he gets back to the starting point before sundown. And so he heads off at sun, sunrise. And he's sprinting and walking and going as far as he can, trying to stretch it as far as he can to get to the halfway point. And then he sees that the sun turns beyond noon. So he turns around and circles all the way back. And he's worried that he's not going to make it. So he's sprinting and, and sprinting. And he's out of the gas all the way. And he makes it just just lunges across 
the starting point as the sun goes down. And there, falls flat on his face, collapses of exhaustion, and dies. And there, his servants, ready to applaud, all of a sudden stand there in silence, and what do they do? They mark out a plot, three feet by six feet. Thus the title. How much land does a man need? The empty pursuits. Now, I put that in here because I can't tell you, all right, how many times in my life I have operated during the day like your cell phone, my cell phone, where you pull it off the charger in the morning, right? And then you just hurry through your day, right? Making calls, looking at emails, running from one thing to another until you kind of, kind of runs out of juice and it's worthless by the end. How many days would I leave my house fully charged and ready to go running from meeting or pursuit and checking my email a gazillion times today and looking at text messages and one goal to the other, one pursuit, one meeting, whatever it might be, and then just barely making it home to the finish line and crashing on the couch and letting ESPN wash over me for about 30 minutes? Serious. And that cycle would repeat. Until my mentor one day told me, he says, hey, Mark, be careful. Because the difference between a rut and a grave is only a few feet. How much man land does a man need? We are struck, we're, we're locked in this pursuit of empty pursuits that will not satisfy. Why do we waste our time on those things? Listen to me and listen that your soul may live. That's what the prophet is saying to us. We're confused about what we want. We sometimes confuse luxuries with necessities. Right? We confuse good things and miss out on the best things. We forget that contentment is more often than not defined by having what we desire instead of remembering that contentment really is about learning to desire what we have. Agreed? I, I buy things on Craigslist. Does anyone else buy things on Craigslist? Well, we were a one-income family for years, and so I always liked the idea of saving money. And I will never forget this. It was really about this time, probably about 10 or 12 years ago, but I've never forgotten the experience because I was putting my Christmas lights up or getting ready to, and I, I thought for some reason that it was really important to put Christmas lights on the second story of our house. So I was absolutely convinced that the way I needed to do that was to go out and buy a really long extension ladder. So I'm on Craigslist, and I find what I think is a really good deal over with a guy in Monrovia, and I call him, and it's a Saturday afternoon, and I say, hey, I really think this is a good deal on a ladder. Can I come out and look at it? And he's a very elderly gentleman. He's very peaceful on the phone. He says, sure, you just have to be here by sundown. I'm thinking about this, how much land does a man need kind of a thing. But the bottom line is, just be here by sundown. So I said, well, that's an interesting thing. Why do I need to be there by sundown? And he says, because that's when we start our Sabbath. So what do I do? Get in the car run to the ATM, pull the cash out to buy the ladder, right? Jump in the car, dodge the highway patrolman all the way out on the West 210, right? And then all of a sudden Caltrans and their infinite wisdom is doing some construction or whatever, and so what happens? I'm sitting in the lanes looking in that direction, all of a sudden the sun goes down, and I pull off the road and I think, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? Here I am, a hot mess, with money in my pocket, going to get something that I really don't need. I could have borrowed it. Contrasted with the picture of a man probably on his back porch watching the sun go down so he can start to worship. We confuse good things. There's nothing wrong with ladders and Craigslist and saving money. But we forget out on the, we miss out on the best things. My life struggles. 
so does yours, between good and bad. The good things we do, the bad things, the sinful things we do. But more often than not, our lives also struggle because we substitute good things for the best thing. And that's what this postcard is bringing forward to us. Amen? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. It says this, If we consider the unblemished, unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea. We are far, far too easily pleased. Confusing good things for the best things. Now, we talked a little bit about this in men's Bible study on Tuesday. In my work currently, I spend a lot of time with managers and, and directors of divisions, one-on-one. And it's kind of a coaching role. And so when people ask me what it's about, what, what I really try and get the individual to do is to say, well, I want you to think about what it would look like for you to protect the most important parts of who you are for the most important parts of your work, your role. That's what I try and do. In the context of contentment, here's what it means. It means for all of us to first listen. We can't figure this out on our own. Listen to God's word, listening prayer, and following the Holy Spirit's guidance such that we listen to understand what he desires to do in bringing the gifts, abilities, and graces that he has uniquely gifted me with to the most important people, things, and tasks that he has put on my plate and put before me. That's the best thing. That's what true contentment is like. That's what we pursue. So, are you contented? Are you content in the Lord? Do you know contented people? I mean, they're striking when you meet them. And I don't mean people whose contentment is based on their leisure, their abundance, or their status. I'm talking about people who are content irrespective of their circumstances. They're striking. I have to ask myself, am I content? When I leave my house in the morning, does Linda say, hey, there goes Mr. Contentment? I ask my kids. I, I've done this. I, I, know what, I knew what they would say. Would you say your dad is a contented person? Dad, contentment? Sometimes. It's an important truth for me to wrestle with. Contentment. A couple things that I've wrestled with this week. Tests. Like I said, I'm going to pass some of this on to you. Am I contented? Do thoughts of money and possessions consume my day? Do I live in fear of losing what I have? Does the material or financial success of others make me jealous? Do I define success by what I have or who I am? Do family and important relationships get neglected by my pursuit of wealth, possessions, or status? Do I close my eyes and ignore the needs of others? And then this one, this was the kicker. 
when it comes to my time, my abilities, and my giftedness, does God get my first fruits or my leftovers? It's a good test, isn't it? Are you contented? Well, that's the struggle. So what about the secret? How do we turn the corner and understand what it means to live the contented life in Christ? Before we go there, I want to add a quick caveat. It is in no way, shape, or form a sin to have wealth or blessing. Right? In and of itself, having wealth or blessing is not a sin. But the danger, of course, is that we need to be reminded that the abundance we enjoy comes from God lest we become proud, smug, and indifferent and hard-hearted. But throughout Scripture, the person who has abundance that is matched by their generosity is a, is a picture of a contented man or woman. Amen? So with that, how do, we, how do we understand what it means to be contented in the Lord? I'm just going to say, these are, things that, these are my homework assignments. These are things I'm working through. I don't have all this put together. So I figure I'll pass it on to you. If you come up with ideas, you can share them back with me. But what is contentment? Well, it's, and Jeremiah Burroughs calls it the rare jewel of the Christian faith. It is an undervalued grace. And the clues to how we achieve it are in the passage that we looked at earlier. Right? We looked at this earlier in this mid-portion of, of Isaiah 55 where it says, Seek the Lord. Call on the Lord. Forsake your ways. Turn to the Lord. And receive mercy. And then this. Listen. Like a, like a parent getting down with a little toddler, cradling their cheeks right here. Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good. Give ear that your soul may live. So in listening and learning what it means to lead the contented life, we'll look at the Apostle Paul here as we begin to wrap up. What does it mean to lead, lead the contented life? From Philippians 4, let's look at this verse together. It says this, I have learned the secret of being content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Famous verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Heard that verse, haven't we? Many times. We've quoted it many times. So a couple observations. One, it's clear that true contentment is independent of our circumstance. It is independent of our circumstances. We all know that happiness, right, the definition of happiness, it depends on what happens. But true joy is independent of those circumstances. Paul knew what it was like to live in the harshness of a prison cell. He also knew what it was like to be in the lap of luxury. One of the women in the New Testament was Lydia, the founders of the early church, right? She was a wealthy businesswoman, had a, probably a house, nice house down by the river. And Paul and the other apostles would stay there. He also knew what it was like to be with nothing more than a blanket down by the river. But he knew the secret to being content in any and every situation, and it wasn't dependent on his circumstances. Why? Because it's not about the how or the what. It's about the who. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's not some sort of bootstrap, five easy steps to contentment. It is in his relationship with Christ. Now, I... I have to just make a quick comment on this verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's an often misunderstood verse. When I used to coach, I used to see kids put it on the back of their sneakers. Philippians 4.13. 
you know, like I can slam dunk. I can do all things through Christ. I got a big opponent on Friday. I can do all things for whom it gives me strength. I got a test on Saturday. We tend to think of it as God will give me strength to accomplish whatever it is is on my plate or whatever is on my prayer list. That's not what Paul is saying. Now, to be sure, he may give me the giftedness or ability to win the game on Friday or to pass the test on Saturday or to pass the job interview and get the promotion, but that's not what this is saying. This is saying whether, I, whether I'm failing or flourishing, whether I win, whether I lose, whether I get the job, don't get the job. Christ is still Christ. God is still God. He is still ever-present, and I can get through whatever comes my way because of him who is with me in it. It is independent of our circumstances, and it's also learned. Contentment is learned through our circumstances, and it's learned in the school of God's providence. It's learned in the school of God's providence. In fact, in many ways, right, if you think about it, the times when you have really grown in your relationship and contentedness in Christ have probably been those times of poverty, scarcity, trial, temptation, whatever it might be. Right? Like Corey Ten Boom says, you don't really realize that Jesus is all you need until what? Until Jesus is all you have. So contentment is independent of our circumstances. It's learned and it's learned in the school of God's providence because it's not about the what, it's about the who. That's a picture of true and abiding contentment that comes from an ever-deepening relationship with Christ. Remember our definition? The fruit that comes from an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want to make a comment about this. Philippians 4 says, I can do all things through Christ. What we forget is back in Philippians 3, Paul wrote this. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And then this, not that I've already obtained this or been made perfect, but I, what? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. See the progression? We want to jump to, I want to do all things through Christ. What Paul is saying is, well, first, I need to know Christ. Then I pursue Christ in order to do all things through Christ. That is a picture of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus and is a source of true contentment that we learn in the school of God's providence. Also note the word fruit, right? When you think of the word fruit, there should be some clues there. We don't manufacture fruit on our own. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit that comes from a vine-branch relationship. It is the fruit that comes, and I might say only comes, by abiding in our relationship with Christ. I read that this morning from John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. These things I have told you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. It's the fruit of an ever-deepening relationship with Christ. And when we do that, I might suggest to you that we find that contentment in living out our truest and most glorious purpose for His glory. <clears throat> this came to me at the end of our service last week. Who was here last week when we talked about the persecuted church? Some of you were here last week. 
I feel like I need to add this. And I'm going to tell you, brace yourself. Okay, brace yourself. But I looked at this section from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to just share it with you. This is his recipe and his resume when it comes to contentment in the Lord. He writes this. He says, as servants of God, we commend ourselves to you in every way. Get ready. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, and riots, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit and sincere love, truthful speech and the power of God, weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory, dishonor, bad report, good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten and not yet killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, and then this, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Because he possesses the only thing that really matters. It's hard, isn't it, to hear that? I mean, if you were here last week, all right, if you were here last week and you, you listened to Danny's thing about the persecuted church, why is it? Why is it that the church in areas that are experiencing great persecution, injustice, poverty, and scarcity is flourishing? And the church in America that is the most well-funded and well-educated in the history of the world is shrinking. Why? Could it be that they have nothing except the one thing that truly matters? Could it, could it be, <laughs> independent of their circumstances, that they really have learned the secret because they've learned the who in all circumstances? I suggest to you that that's the case. Like I said, I've been wrestling with this. Was it Jim Elliott who said he is no fool? He gives up what he can't keep in order to gain what he can never lose. It's a picture, a recipe of contentment. And for me, it grates on my outlook calendar, career path, retirement planning, investment portfolio, home improvement, leisure, what will I do when, when I have enough, how can I make sure my kids have enough, all those kinds of things, where will we live, what we will do kind of mindset. grates on it, blows it up for the purpose of finding one thing. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you know, on the heels of not worrying, right? What did he say? He said, don't worry, why? Seek first, right? The kingdom of God and the rest will be added. Seek first. What does it mean to seek first? Well, it means to embrace one significant life-transforming ambition to experience the fruit of an ever-deepening relationship with Jesus and to have no higher ambition than to be entirely at his disposal. That's true contentment. Will you permit me to add one more thing? And then we're done. So last night, um, I got to spend some time with my dad. He's going to be 100 next year. And this morning he woke up and after we got his hearing aids figured out, which took a while, he said, what are you preaching on this morning? I said, well, I'm preaching on contentment. And when I've asked my kids about this, I asked them, like I said, How, do you see your dad as contented? And we kind of went back and forth about that. So I said, who do you know who's contented? And they were clear to say my dad, you know, Gerald W. Miller. 
99 and a half. And he, I said, you're right of contentment, huh? What are you going to preach from? So I told him about Isaiah, and then I said, Philippians 4. And he says, you know what? I wrote a poem on that. Wrote a poem about contentment. So would you mind if I close with this? And then we'll worship together. It goes like this. I've learned that I shall be content if I live in a palace or sleep in a tent. If I'm poor, blessed with wealth, if I'm ill or in good health, if I am hurt or free of pain, if I should lose, if I should gain, if I fall or enjoy success, the answer is clear, or if I'm only to guess, I have the Lord who's at my side, in whom I constantly confide, always present, always near, to quell those choking thoughts of fear. My Lord is with me night and day. He's always just a prayer away. If I'm forced to leave this place where I'm at, I'm, pro I'm promised divine habitat where all things are right and nothing is wrong. So I'll exalt my Savior in song. Let's bow our heads and pray and worship together. Lord, I think that, uh, thank you for these fresh words, even this morning, Lord. You know I'm choked up about it, but just pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. We are thirsty and hungry only for you. So hold in our lives that only you can fill, O Lord. So um, I don't know what the Holy Spirit has said to all of us in the room today, but speak. Draw us to yourself. Fill us and use us. And turn our eyes to you, the only source of our true contentment. It's just what it means to know you more deeply, to pursue you that you may live through us for your glorious purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name.